Thanks for listening to the podcast from That One Guy in Sunday School. We've got an interesting topic today comes right out of the New Testament, and that would be the wonderful chapter of Ephesians 5 and the famous words, Wives, submit to your husbands. Yes, we're talking today about should Christian wives submit to their husbands, and what does that mean for us as Christians today? These are some extraordinarily controversial words in Scripture that would be maligned today as sexist, misogynist. Some people, unfortunately, have used them to advance viewpoints that are, in fact, extraordinarily evil and destructive. People have said, you know, oh, you wives must submit to their husbands and do whatever they say, whether that means sitting down and shutting up when he's violent, unfaithful, or worse. The verses in particular that I'm talking about on this episode today are Ephesians 5, verses 21 to 33, and just for reference, I do read out of the King James Version, but I highly encourage you to read these verses for yourself in whatever preferred translation you prefer the Bible to be in. I've always said that I think the best translation is the one that is going to help you grow closer to God by reading it. However, I do use the King James Version in this episode. It begins with the stark introduction in verse 22, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Now, what exactly does that mean? You see, submission can be a lot of different things. It can be a very violent act. You know, uh, an opposing army makes you, the occupied nation submit to their will, or it can be something a little more gentle. And what do we think God and his servant, the Apostle Paul, were referring to when they wrote this? That's the real question. I think it's best to approach the scriptures from not just a spiritual perspective, but also from a logical perspective, and to use cross-references with other scriptures in the Bible to ingrain a greater depth of meaning to the words that are being said. In that spirit, from a logical perspective, I'd like to say, what does Christian submission include, and what does it not include? And to start out, I'd like to point out one of my favorite little things from the English language, a simile, because it's a fun word to say, but also it refers to either like or as, those two little words of comparison. I think this is as that is, or I, th- I think this is just like that. In case you can't remember middle school English, it's easy to forget. Ephesians 5 uses similes frequently. It says, wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord, which to me suggests submit to your husband in the same way you submit to God. So logically, what would that include and what would that not include? Well, when people read these verses, they they frequently think of submission to the violent, angry, evil, repulsive man who has not the best interests in mind. And I don't see how that could be included here because submitting to God means submitting to his righteous but loving and gentle authority. Submitting to an evil man would be more akin to submitting to Satan. And I think people assume that hand-in-hand with submission must mean silence. Now, a woman to silently sit and take whatever her husband throws at her could in, would include potentially submitting to Satan, because if he is the head of the household, that means he's the head of the household. It doesn't mean he is God himself, and it doesn't mean he has the right to act like anything other than what God would do. The Bible says in James 4, 7, 
Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Based on this verse, I would have to conclude, in my opinion, that submission to one's husband cannot include submitting to the devil's will. It is the will of the devil. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy to hurt you. Satan has in mind to destroy you spiritually and physically. Sometimes he uses other little minions of human beings to accomplish that. If that includes a husband, I don't see why the wife should submit to those sorts of evil acts. Sexual harassment would absolutely be out of bounds. Or anything other, any kind of emotional or verbal abuse. So if we rule out that kind of submission, saying that that cannot be what he was talking about here, well, what does submitting to a husband include, and what would that entail? This is something that I find somewhat difficult to come to a conclusion about. What exactly does the submission include? We know what it cannot include, but that seems to leave a blank space. The Bible does talk about this sort of thing. Paul also refers to this relationship, though, as a great mystery. So I'm not going to pretend to know all of the answers on this subject. What I do know it includes is the, that God has given the righteous man, the patriarch of his family, some kind of spiritual authority. In the Old Testament, patriarchs would bless their children. They had some kind of a connection with God, and they would relay that to their families. The women would, in some sense, submit to that, but that Again, that didn't include this kind of nasty, violent submission that we think of today. God has also made men, for whatever reason in his sovereign will, naturally, biologically, a little bit bigger, stronger, and is more of a physical protector. Historically, throughout the thousands of years humans have been on earth, as children of God, men have typically been more of the physical provider of those sorts of things. And I don't know exactly what relationship that has to what Paul says. I don't think that's what he's talking about directly, but I think that indicates the man as a little bit of a natural leader so far as he is keeping God's commandments himself and being that good Christian man that God wants him to be. So I wish I could provide a little bit more detail on that, but I do think we have a lot more to cover in this episode. And that is because Paul has a lot more to say in the chapter after verse 22. See, he talks about a marriage, and we as people, as Christians and as non-Christians, whatever you are listening to this, we get hung up on the first few verses on what the wives are supposed to do. It's, you know, wives submit, and we, we kind of just stop there. But Paul goes on and has several verses about what the man is supposed to do. And it's unfair to consider these verses without also considering what Paul says the men are supposed to do. Now, the verses I see that are particularly aimed straight at men are verses 25, 28, and 29. And I read as follows, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth it and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. So in those verses, we've got two different commands to men. One to love in the same way that Christ loved the church, and the other to love 
in the same way that they care for their own bodies. Looking at the first one, how did Christ love his church? Well, we uh, know the story. He lived for us. He went through in his ministry homelessness and poverty and a lot of ridicule. And in his death, he went through public humiliation, torture. He was literally bleeding out of every square inch, every pore of his body in agony for our sins. He was whipped and beaten, arrested, tried unjustly, and crucified. He picked up his cross and carried it all for us. That's the kind of suffering we're talking about here. And while we're not saying, or I'm not saying at least, that every man's going to go through that, most of us can't take it. In fact, I don't think none of us could, could do what Jesus did. It's to be willing to make a sacrifice like that for a man must do that for his wife if called upon to do so. We're not all in those situations, but if we were, and I shouldn't say we because I'm a single guy, but that's the kind of sacrifice Paul is saying to make. So this isn't just letting guys off the hook by any means. Now, as for the second, men are to love women as their own bodies. Well, what does a guy do for his own body? And the first thought that came to my mind was a guy is very responsive to his body's needs quickly. You're hungry, he's going to go up in the fridge. Thirsty, you're going to get water, use the bathroom whenever you need to. You're going to be responsive immediately to what your body is feeling. And I think that indicates a high level of attentiveness that all guys need to be showing to their wives and what their wives' needs are. And that could be spiritual, physical, emotional, or, or any other kind of need or want that she's in, that the guy needs to be paying real close attention to that and do everything he can to satisfy them. Can't do everything, but he can do something, and he needs to be trying for that constantly. Now, I think it'd be interesting to go in-depth into what are some very specific things that we know a guy who's living Ephesians 5 would do based on the scriptures. And we're talking really specific. And first thing that came to my mind was he would cry with his wife. A man would, because we know from John chapter 11 that Jesus wept with the women he cared about when they were in a time of emotional distress. There'd been a death in the family. And Jesus cried with them. He didn't just immediately go solve the problem. He spent time emotionally connecting with them and was just there in the sense that so many people wish someone would be there for them. Now, the stark nature of that situation does not rule out crying in other situations as well. Some women cry when a cute commercial comes on TV or when cookies get sent to them or just off of a text or something small. And that's totally okay. I'm not saying the guy has to cry over every little thing that she does. But when the time is right, he needs to be there to weep with her and be okay with her being emotional. He should be there, be understanding, be present, and cry with her when the time is right. Secondly, the ideal husband living Ephesians 5 would be extraordinarily forgiving, even for big mistakes. Also from the book of John, John chapter 8, Jesus forgave the woman in adultery. Now, though in that little story, which we sadly don't have enough of, it's deserving of its own podcast episode, Jesus never says the actual words, I forgive you. He says, go and sin no more. But we know for a fact that he showed mercy to a woman who was caught in the very act 
of adultery. She had a husband somewhere that she was cheating on, and the Savior was aware of that. He never said what she did was okay, but he allowed her that chance to move on, to put that sin behind her, and to be forgiven, washed clean, and become a great you know, woman in the church, presumably, after that. The guy, the husband living Ephesians 5, would be like that. If his wife could tell him something really nasty out of her past, something very uh, unlikable, something sinful maybe, and he would be willing to be patient and forgiving. Thirdly, the man living Ephesians 5 would defend his wife against insults of any kind. In John chapter 12, I know John seems to have a lot of references to the Savior interacting with women. I think that's great. But in John chapter 12, there's this little story that the Savior, in part of it, told one of his disciples to leave this woman alone. She's she's putting ointment on him, I believe, and one of the apostles pipes up and he's, you know, why, why didn't we sell this stuff and sell it, use that money, and give it to the poor? Jesus says, leave her alone. She's doing a good deed. Well, I don't think that's the main takeaway from that story. I think it's safe to assume from that story that when a woman was in the right, when she had done nothing wrong, Jesus stood up for her and took her side in the argument, if that's what you want to call it. The ideal husband should be doing that. Okay, to take a break from the book of John and go jump over to Matthew, we know a fourth thing. Jesus spent time with kids and was willing to do so even when it may have been seen as inconvenient. Matthew 19:14, Suffer the little children to come unto me. This was in a time when the apostles were saying, hey, when we get the kids out of here, let's spend time doing more important things, I think was what they were basically saying. And Jesus says, no. No, let the children come. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. The ideal man living Ephesians 5 should be spending all the time and attention his kids need. There's no excuse for a dad being absent emotionally or physically or spiritually. Now, I understand that sometimes guys have to work long hours to get the money to pay the bills. That is understandable. And for that reason, it is okay if a guy is not there. When I say there's no excuse for a guy being absent, I mean no having a football game and ditching the kids or things like that. Work is necessary. Playtime by yourself, not so much. Kids growing up need good parents who believe in them, who spend, there's this big thing about quality time. Just spend time where you're actually doing the same thing as them. If you take your kids to the park and you just let them do their thing while you're on your phone the whole time, I'd say that's better than nothing, but spend time doing things with the kids is what the dad needs to be doing, I think. Interact with them. Don't just be in the same location, although that is critical. Fifth, based on Matthew 5.28, I think that the ideal husband would never look at other women in an inappropriate way. This includes eyeballing women who are walking down the street, posters on the walls of a store maybe, scandalous pictures on the walls of a men's bathroom, <laughs> or pornography, or even a full-blown affair. This is a topic which, again, it deserves its own complete podcast episode, and I hope I can do one one day, but 
Suffice it to say, if the man is living Ephesians 5, he's, he's just never going to look at anything like that. And if he was, he would immediately repent and ask for forgiveness. Because we know no one is perfect like Jesus was, but we know that the Christian man would never take a second look at a woman down the street. You know, if you would, if a man and his wife are on a date and there's a much younger woman walking down the street, he may see her, but he's just going to look the other way and not look back, try to forget all about it. Because Jesus said, if you look at a woman to lust after her, it's the same thing as if you've committed adultery. And I think all guys have probably been guilty of that, but the Christian man living Ephesians 5 would do everything he could to, to not do that. And lastly, the man should be willing to die for his wife if it came to that. That's something that most husbands never face. Thankfully, I don't think any of them want to face that. But they, they would if they had to. And maybe that takes the form of living for your wife, as in doing something that sacrifices your enjoyment and your happiness for her. Whether it's working an extra shift to make money for the house payment or something like that. Whatever form it may take, the man has to be need, must be able to sacrifice for his wife up to the point of death. Now, each of these little examples of things that I think guys have to do, I've tied, or at least I've attempted to tie, straight to a very scriptural example of something Jesus did. What about some things that we know a little bit less about? Well, this is where you get the gospel according to that one guy in Sunday school. However, just a few suggestions, in my humble opinion, about what guys should do based on this scripture telling them to love their wives as much as their own bodies. First of all, let her wear makeup to the extent she wants to. You see, women have a different self-image complex than guys. It works differently, and that's okay. That's how God made them. Sometimes men and women get into arguments over things like that, and I'm not saying you should wear this much, you should not wear this much makeup. That is, that is up to the woman, and I think... The guy should understand that, and he should not be angry over that decision that she chooses to make in that regard. Secondly, I think she should let her spend time with her friends to the extent that she needs to. If she has that emotional need to be with people she cares about other than the husband, that's okay. As long as there's nothing inappropriate going on, that's perfectly fine. Another one, you know, don't micromanage her diet. I think that... God made women smart, and he made them with, like I said earlier, a different self-image complex. I think it's always great to encourage people in a friendly way to be healthy. Men should encourage women, women should encourage men, and vice versa. But understand that not everybody has the same goals, the same desires, or the same biology. Don't micromanage how she eats. Let her come to that conclusion and support her on her decision. Another one, understand that she has different hormones than you and that she's not always going to feel the same way. See, your body tells you to do certain things, you feel that, and you act accordingly. Her body isn't going to speak to her the same way yours speaks to you. Women go through a lot of things that guys just don't really understand. It's okay. It's how God made us. Periods, giving birth, pregnancy, all those things, guys are never fully going to understand that. And that's all right. Men, you should understand that and understand that loving her as much as you love your own body 
means accepting her for how she is in that regard. And don't always expect intimacy any place, any time. Definitely not any place, but certainly not all the time either. She's going to be in different moods than you. That's okay. Loving her perfectly as your own body means understanding that her body isn't always in the same mood that yours is. Accept that and be okay with it. Basically, what I'm saying is understand that her body is just as valuable to God as yours is. Understand that it has different needs than you, and you're not always going to understand them. But do your best to understand them and act based on that understanding. Be loving and be supportive. Loving her as your own body means understanding what you don't understand about her body. If you have further questions about that... <laughs> Ask God, because he can answer them better than I could. As Paul writes, this is all a great mystery. I think that the, this picture Paul paints is a really beautiful one, in which the man and the woman, husband and wife, are joined together in unity, believing in God's gospel, and experiencing the love that comes from living the commandments that Jesus gave us. I think the man is the leader, according to scripture. But I don't think that that goes as far physically as people make it out to be. I don't think that means a dominating evil king or anything like that. And you may be wondering, well, what about the middle things? You know, it's a, he, he shouldn't be violent. He should be spiritual. What if he says, we're going to arrange the furniture this way, not that way. And because I'm the man of the house, that's my final say. And the truth is, I don't have the answer to every one of those situations. What I think should happen in that situation, though, for sure, is they should have a understanding conversation because God gave women a brilliant mind. In Proverbs 31, there's obvious intention there that women are smart and capable. I think the guy should listen to what her viewpoint is, and I think they should try to come to an agreement on it. If Should he get the final say? Maybe, but this is such a circumstantial topic that you'd best not take my word for it. I don't know what's going on in everybody's home, and I don't want to. I have no interest in settling each dispute that a husband and wife may have that would get old, and it would probably result in a lot of divorces if I tried to settle everything because I'm not very good at arbitration. I would recommend jointly reading the scriptures, praying and growing closer to God, and if you do that, there shouldn't be much of a disagreement because everything that's potentially a deal breaker any major issues like should we go to church or not should it be okay for the guy to do this inappropriate thing or not those answers a lot of times are in scriptures and more minor things are things that are okay to compromise with is it okay for a guy to beat his wife absolutely not is it okay for him to tell her where to organize things in the house pray on that one you two should come to a decision because God has given both of you brilliant minds. And when God created man, he created all the animals first, and Adam was the head honcho. He was told to have dominion over the fowls of the air, the fish of the sea, everything on the earth. And there was a problem in that there was not a helpmeet there for Adam. Because there was no helpmeet, None of these animals that God had created would do it. They were a class below Adam. God wanted to make one last thing. He made Eve. 
a co-equal helper. I don't think she was meant to be completely and totally subservient to Adam, because Adam already had that. He already had every animal, a pandas, gorillas, giraffes, whales, dinosaurs. All the coolest animals were already subservient to Adam. God wanted to make him a partner and a helper. And I think that's a better model for what a marriage is supposed to be look like. A team effort, not a one-sided subservient slave relationship. That being said, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast episode. And if you'd like to hear more, consider subscribing. I'm Carl, that one guy in Sunday school. <laughs>